0: Tonight's talk is on happiness. There are many kinds of happiness and many avenues for pleasure. The mind is an amazing and mysterious phenomena, and the five sense fields, an amazing extension uh, of the mind. Uh, From time immemorial, our, our ancestors have been... Really, infinitely creative uh, as well as destructive, but in terms of creating um, visual arts and crafts, literature, oral storytelling, music, architecture, that reflect elements and aspects of of the mind it 's really an amazing uh, creative nature that the human species. Uh, has become as well as destructive. Last Christmas, I was visiting friends in Rome and went into uh, St. Peter's Cathedral. I'd been there once before, uh, 40 years ago. And I was in a very different consciousness 40 years ago. This time I went in and it was a timeless two hours standing and walking through the cathedral and all i can say is that it was it was just a stunning time and i was speechless with my friend you know i could have talked and asked questions but we just whispered there are actually several hundred young students there because the pope was coming in, in a short while to talk to them but the inspiration that went into that architectural creation. It just had a spiritual power to it that did not belong to any religion, did not belong to any sect or belief system, uh, but it's, it's the, the movement of the shape and form uh, and the, the c- power of the color, the frescoes, the marble, the form, the shape, the contours, everything about it was just was just stunning. Visual, auditory. And even the feeling that came over the body and the mind being in there. Physical pleasures, we know that through dance, martial arts, sports, you know, whatever we like to do, hiking, biking. Surfing is its own unique category, I think, from anything else. (laughs) All the sense pleasures, you know, that we can know in the body. Taste, uh, scent, visual beauty, uh, sounds, sounds we make, natural sounds, wind, uh, nature, birds singing. When we really pay attention, you know, here we are, whatever seventh day or so into the practice. Uh, The doors of perception have become quite still. We're learning to know the senses, not get lost in the objects of the senses, but to know the very nature of the senses, the sense fields. What is the field of visual uh, experience, both pleasurable and unpleasurable, auditory, sensate, and so forth. Also, many kinds of happiness from the spiritual qualities we 're developing, profound kind of happiness we can experience in, in, in generosity. you know, and the more we practice, the more we, uh, just we are generosity. There's a way of being that is just being generosity as a way of life, it gives a lot of happiness and pleasure and the service that might follow from that. Sharon spoke of, of the Brahma-viharas, to be able to express kindness and to be able to feel the, the gentle kindness from another. That's a happiness that can't be bought, that can't be bargained for, that fearless presence in the face of suffering that we call compassion, and to feel so cared for when we're hurting in any way, physically, emotionally, psychologically, to feel cared for. There's a happiness there, even in that pain. The unfettered joy in being and in taking uh, pleasure in other people's happiness, success and joy. And in our own success and accomplishment, rather than feeling envy and jealousy, feeling from people that they're celebrating, our happiness. Mudita, empathetic joy. And even equanimity, which is such a balanced and serene, unreactive place. But here's quality of mind in which people feel seen by us because we're not judging them. We're so balanced and non-reactive in those equanimous moments that we're taking in the whole person every bit of them, and they feel unjudged, they feel seen, they feel recognized. And likewise, when someone before us is being uh, uh, that power of a quantumist presence, just being there, and we feel seen, accepted, that too brings a happiness. We all want to be happy. And the, the Buddha's teaching it's all about happiness, is the way to happiness. Steve's talk on the four noble truths, you know, shows the the dark and the light side, shows the truth of difficulty and stress, anguish, and the causes of it, and ignorance and, and grasping, and the light of being liberated from that. And that joyous. Path of happiness, the Eightfold Path that leads us to that. And so, through, through this practice, we learn that there are many kinds of wanting, many kinds of desire. We learn about the kinds of desire that lead to pain, that lead to suffering, that lead to harm. The desire that Steve spoke of in the Second Noble Truth called Tanha is an insatiable desire. It's a kind of desire that's never fulfilled, that is always wanting and never fully satisfied because it's looking for peace and looking for security where it's not. Because our vision has been distorted. We're not seeing clearly. Upadana, another word, is when the craving becomes clinging an excessive attachment. We're really identified. It's really hard then to disidentify, to let go of that. We're pretty caught at that level of clinging. And it takes a lot of patience and space to let that one go. The word loba, you know, means greed. The word raga means lust. But you know, some of these words apply to the most skillful and most wholesome kinds of desire. Dhammaraga, lust or passion for dhamma, for truth. Metta, chanda, the the desire for, for connection, for loving kindness. Wanting to be liberated, wanting to feel connected to others, wanting others to be happy, wanting to be caring to others. Our language is rather limited, you know, and we, you hear us talk about wanting or attachment or, or desire and perhaps group it all under the kinds of desire or attachment that are harming, that do cause identification, a solidification and sense of separation between us and all other life forms. But many kinds of wanting... Take us through that. But tonight I want to talk about four particular kinds of happiness, known as insight happiness. The happiness that comes from our practice, comes from seeing deeply, seeing clearly, into our own body and mind, into our own senses. Each of these four are equated to what are called the uh, Vipassana Jhanas, In pure concentration practice, jhanas are known as uh, the uh, samatha or pure concentration practices where we fix attention unwaveringly on a single object. It can be a light, it can be some symbol, it can be a word or a mantra, it can be the breath without watching the changing nature of the breath. It can be uh, metta, the phrases of metta and the metta feeling in particular. All these can bring the mind to such a level of deep concentration that it plunges into uh, to the object. So for metta, it plunges into the metta vihara, the highest form of metta, where it just pulsates and radiates out in waves. That's a, a samatha absorption. And the classical jhanas, Mahasi Sayadaw, the teacher of Upandita, uh, his meditation teacher was known as the Mingun Sayadaw. He equated vipassana insights with four of these jhanas, so he developed this idea of the vipassana jhanas, where one has very similar experience, but instead of being absorbed into a single object, one is absorbed into an insight into seeing the nature of things not to a degree of such absorption absorption that one cannot see the arising and changing nature of things but just enough that there is a complete change of our world a complete shift in the way we regard our body and our mind and our senses very profound. First kind of happiness, Vipassana happiness, is called the happiness of seclusion. When we come on retreat, we enter into a realm of solitude. The first thing we notice is our um, uh, well excitement of coming into a retreat, our apprehensions. The wanting mind, uh, we start noticing, you know, when we make little judgments about where we're sleeping or the food or the sounds around us. Uh, and, and the initial entry into solitude, uh, you know, can be, can be a little rough. But before long, we see how little it takes to be satisfied. We see how, how, how little... Needs and wants and can make us feel content and happy, and bring peace of mind. The happiness of seclusion begins with our awareness as it connects and sustains with experience. We go to an anchor such as the breath or the body or the mind itself. The initial connection. Uh, is the entry into that moment's sensation, that moment's sound, or that mind quality of fear or joy or knowing. And then there's the immersion, the sustaining of that awareness that knows from the inside the texture, nature, quality of that experience, knows that breath, knows that physical sensation, that mental sensation. We begin to move from the more incessant conceptualization of experience, interpretation of experience, to move from that to, to the as it isness of things. That is how things are when form and concept begin to fall away. We get initial taste when the mind just remains in the middle not reactive, as it feels, various discomforts, and then moments of pleasure, and then again various discomforts. Because this first entryway, this first insight, that is the happiness of seclusion, has a lot of unpleasant sensations, a lot of initial pain, discomfort. We, we try to analyze it. We try to fix it and change postures. In the interviews, we, we talk about our you know, unpleasant experiences as if it's a blockage to meditation. And you know we're here to reassure you, no, this is part of it. It's exactly what we need to feel to go through, to find these inner Dhamma pleasures, to find these places of peace and contentment within. So we start to learn the power of opening to and going through dukkha, this first noble truth that that Steve spoke about the other night. To accept suffering is so necessary to know the mind and heart, to know life as it really is, to genuinely accept it, to go through the resistance, to go through thinking that Suffering or pain is something that we shouldn't have or something wrong. We did something wrong. It's a mistake. You know, we blame ourselves. It's just the opposite. It is a truth of existence. It is one that liberates us and brings joy as we go into it. Because as we really deeply know the nature of anguish, distress, or suffering in the body in the mind, gets lifted, are very pure desires and wants. Very pure in the sense that we begin to know what it is we really need and want that leads to happiness. Where is this? This is right in the center of the suffering that we begin to open up to, that we begin to accept, investigate, have insight to. And develop this attitude of non attachment. This is the way it is. Things change. Things are changing. That changeability is disrupting us, unstable, insecure. There's an essential anxiety about that. That's dukkha. As we begin to know these wants, as we begin to get glimpses in what it takes to be happy. These tremendous energies are freed up. Emotions. Liberating healthy desires are freed up, are released. No longer entangled in these folds of suffering that we've spent so much time in denial about. Repressing, pushing away, avoiding. So What surfaces with the pain that we know, just ordinary pain, dukkha dukkha, as Steve was saying, or the deeper kinds of pain, of change, or existence itself, what begins to surface enables us to turn within because it's, a, it's an inquiry of mind. It is a, a true desire to want to know the truth. So we take that energy Desire and turn it inward and go deep into the mind, into the core of our being. Develop this continuous mindfulness through the uh, connecting awareness and the sustaining awareness. That sustained awareness is what begins to uh, gather the mind together to help the form or or the conceptual clothing to fall away so that we can be for quite long periods of time with things as they are, with the as-it-is-ness of things. While we're doing this, we're beginning to really enjoy this seclusion. What are we secluded from? We're secluded from all the the influxes of distraction, the hindrances, the mind that wants something else to be happening, the mind that gets bored with what is happening, that gets elated when it's good, that gets depressed when we feel meditation's no good, that has doubts and fears. We begin to be secluded, protected in our solitude from that our cravings relax you know still there are gaps that come up and we fall into these holes and out of our solitude and when we feel disconnected or we get yogi mind joseph was talking about the other night where we imagine things you know we imagine we're the only bad yogi at this retreat the only one who can't is not perfectly mindful you know, every, everyone else must be having hardly any thoughts at all. You know, and I'm full of all these crazy thoughts and imaginings. It's not true. To recognize that yogi mind as it comes. The, the very first retreat eight years ago that uh, I was teaching with the abbot of this 14th century monastery in Upper Burma. There were about 25 international students, uh, and the the Sayadaw and myself, it was a five-week retreat, and we were about three (coughs) weeks into it, and one evening everything was nice and quiet, we'd give our talks in the afternoon, two o'clock and four o'clock in the afternoon, and then then I'd go for a walk, walking in the village with uh, some friends and visiting the um, hospital and school there. We have a project now where we support this hospital and we've built a number of schools. Talking to village people. All of a sudden, these young, novice monks came running up. You know? Stephen, Stephen! Come back quickly, quickly. There's something terribly wrong with a yogi yelling, screaming. And we can't find them. So um. Wondering what's happening, I come running back and I see the Sayadaw in his cottage. And Sayadaw says, "Yes, there's someone screaming up above," and he, he sent you know twenty or thirty of the young novices, the age, age from about seven to seventeen, running through the trees and brush. Couldn't find anybody, so I, I walked up there. The, the women are on the north side of the valley, and the men are in the south side of the valley. This is right on the Irrawaddy River. And just over the south side of the valley, there was an abandoned dhamma hall, you know, like this, maybe uh, one-fifth one the size. And one of our yogis had gone in there. And a lot of stuff was coming up for him. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of pain, a lot of childhood pain. And uh, I think there was particularly stuff around his his dad. So he was in the in the um, in the hall. It's actually from one of the countries uh, down under. But I guess he had heard of one of these California therapies called Primal Scream. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, he, he he reached a point where he he felt that. Some expression of sound you know from his being would be helpful, and so he 's in this empty hall, not realizing you know that an empty hall can act like a a funnel of of sound being pushed out of the hall down through the valley out over into the other valleys on either side, the nunnery on one side, our monastery on the other side, across the river and all up and down the Sagaine Hills. <laughs> the Sagaine Hills for the past one or 2,000 years has not had a retreat with Westerners and certainly any primal scream experience. <laughs> so this was really new and almost terrifying for them. I went up there and, and uh, when and the young man saw me, he was hiding in the bushes and said, Stephen, Stephen, come. So I went over and he said, I'm so embarrassed, you know, the people must have heard me and all these little monklets were coming to look for me and <laughs> I said, don't worry, don't worry, I'll take care of it, you know, and just gave him some metta and he settled down and... I said, no one will ever have to even know it was you. Just go back to your hall or go back to your sitting kuti, you know, cottage. And I went down and Sayadaw said, well, what happened? And I said, well, you know, he was feeling all these uh, sensations and emotions uh, and difficult emotions and sadness and grief and, and um, uh, abandonment. And, and then he felt the urge to scream, you know, and, and, then, and then he screamed. And then he said, and he asked me, well, did he notice the urge? (laughs) And I said, no, I don't think so. He says, that was it. That was all the problem. Just go tell him that. And it's okay. Now I understand. He forgot to note about the screen. (laughs) In the... In the seclusion of mind, our emotional, psychological, and spiritual natures get more quiet, more developed. You know, the, the gaps, the holes that we fall in become less and less. We start to really take an interest in this mind and body. What is it? What's hidden? You know, behind the way, I've always viewed the body through this curtain of concepts through the veil of like and dislike, through the sides of myself and emotions and parts of my body I like and the parts I don't like. This is where we begin to see into the Dhamma, the natures of impermanence, of dukkha, the emptiness of self. They're all really the same insight, just a different entryway. What is in constant change isn't stable, isn't reliable. And so is dukkha, because it doesn't provide the kind of peace we're looking for. What is in constant change and what isn't stable, there can't be an abiding, separate, uh, independent self. Only process. Anicca, dukkha, anatta, they're the same. Same insight. Some of our, our disposition, we, we see more the changing nature. Some of our disposition, we tune in more to the dukkha nature of things. Some of our nature, we feel or get a sense of, of the emptiness of ourselves and all life. It doesn't matter. And these insights arise of their own, in their own time, you know, according to our practice, according to the quietness that comes from seclusion. This is the first kind of happiness, the happiness of seclusion, an insight that begins to occur when the concepts fall away. And when we first come to know, get little glimpses into impermanent nature, dukkha nature, anatta nature. The mind grows more concentrated. Opportunities arise again for deeper insight. The second vipassana jhana, or the second kind of happiness, is a happiness of concentration, comes about uh, uh, as the fruit of moment-to-moment, gentle, persevering effort. That is the effort just to be in the present moment, just to be here and now. Remember that mindfulness only operates in the present moment, can only attune to what's currently arising. Otherwise, it's a thought about past, about future, or a thought even about what's happening in the present moment. That's not mindfulness. Mindfulness is that pre-verbal, pre-symbolic, pre-conceptual awareness that immediately touches and knows from within the experience its texture, its characteristic, its nature whether a sensation, a sound, a sight, uh, a mental state, or the stream of consciousness itself. There's a certain glow that we might begin to feel in the heart, in the mind, a shining like the sun that starts to peek out from clouds or the moon rising over the horizon, giving that silver color to everything. What a brightness... And we begin to feel this brightness. Feel more protected when the mind's concentrated. Longer periods of time uh, where there's more distance from the hindrances, more space around them when they arise, that is not identified with them. Therefore, the capacity to just study the nature of sense desire when it appears, ill will when it appears, how it's affecting the mind, at the moment, how it's affecting the body, shortness of breath, heat, a you know, feeling of rushing upstairs, uh, the heart pounding. Now, all these strong emotions or hindrances can be seen in a, uh, in a series as a compression of different aspects coming together, the mental and the physical. And even more, as they uncompress, we see that they are in motion. We see that they are process, That There's no two moments alike. A moment of anger, and then it's gone. That same moment will not re-arise. It's a second moment of anger if it continues. And we start to see the spaces between, and that's where we disidentify. That's where we see more anicca, change, impermanence. That causes more, more space, to feel, and disidentify, with these qualities. The lot of joy in the mind as the mind becomes more spacious and bright, and clear. Buddha described five kinds of joy. Minor, just like a kind of instant moment of pleasure. Feel good, get a shiver, you know. Your hair stands on, its, on your neck or, wow, this feels good, but then it's gone. You wonder, huh, did I really feel that? The second kind is called momentary, which is more like a lightning flash. You know you felt that one. You know, it went up and down your spine third kind is called uplifting joy, where you really feel uh, a sense of transporting. From your practice, you can feel this. From some, from some kind of inspiration, you can feel this. A lot of people feel this from the chanting, Dhammaruan's chants. From just seeing someone practicing really mindful. You see them make a movement, a step, and you get a deep, intuitive hit of their, of their awareness, of their presence that can give you a rush of this transporting, uplifting joy. Someone's excitement. Last month uh, at IMS, uh, Michelle and I and two friends were teaching annual spring retreat and Dhamma Ruan, Annie were there. And Dhamma Ruan, for the first time, played baseball with some friends' kids. He comes from in Sri Lanka, and they're into cricket. They don't know baseball, so he was excited trying this new sport. And I was sitting outside and when he came back, and he was so happy. You know, he says, the f- f- first three pitches, I hit every one. I hit every ball. And, and, the, and the boy, I think his name was Adam or something, uh, he says, I'm a very good baseball player. He said, and the third one was a home run. And he gave a good demonstration of how his swing was, you know, and how far the ball went. You know, and I just felt just transporting joy, this basking in his own excitement and joy about it. The fourth kind of joy is, um, uh, is transporting joy. What I missed was telling you about the third kind of joy, <laughs> <laughs> which is showering joy like standing under a shower or lying on a beach when waves, like especially warm Hawaiian water, rushes up <laughs> over your body and rushes back again, the surge that you feel. That kind of joy which comes from practice. That's a dhamma, pleasure. And then the uplifting pleasure. And then the fifth, most mature joy is, is an all-pervading. It starts to take the thrill, you know, and be more tendered, more smooth. This is the kind of joy that's most helpful in practice. All these aspects, all these Dhamma pleasures are, are essential parts of our practice. They lift the mind. So the mind becomes happy, delighted, calm, peaceful, concentrated, protected from distraction and disturbance. And then, insightful, and then liberated, so these are, these are not, these are birthrights and they're also uh, uh, parts of the process of our opening of our practice. This is very settled where we feel filled to the brim, this fifth kind of joy called all pervading suffusing joy. so this insight is. a major step in maturity in the insight process. It's called the insight of early arising and passing away. It's where we begin to see that everything that arises is passing away. Mind, sensation, mind sensations, body sensations, even little bit of glimpses of what we see visually is always changing. Sometimes we start to notice sounds or just little units of, of energy, and they break up into little pieces, peering, disappearing. There's no solid, steady sound, but just moments of sound. You start to notice that, peering, disappearing swiftly. It's a place where we start experiencing a lot of light. We feel in the body, in the mind. Sometimes people experience externally this light. i give you an example. Here's a Dhamma tool. It's light. Start to see light. And start to see light as it changes. (laughs) People get enamored by these lights that come up lights of all colors, lights of all shapes, lights where we identify. Lights that we get attached to, because along with that becomes, the mind becomes very light. And sometimes we feel, one might feel that this is enlightenment even. <laughs> and a stage comes that we call the rolling up the mat stage, where you feel you've become enlightened and you roll up your mat and go home. It's an enchantment. It's called stopping within. And it's when the best use of a teacher to to say, you know, really look carefully, really watch carefully your experience, particularly notice the feeling tone of experience. One time, several months into practice, uh, I was experiencing a lot of bliss, blissful sensations, rapture, rapture states of mind. Uh, and really uplifting uh, transporting energy and joy and bliss, and report this to my teacher one day and then another day, about the third day, you know it 's kind of like, "So what?" you know is this all you want to do?" And so he gave me the instruction of just observing the second foundation of mindfulness, feeling tone, watching pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That is, to make a resolve to watch that more than body sensation, more than mind or mind objects. So I did that. And the first you know, day or so, just observing really pleasant experience, pleasant sensations, sights, mental states, enjoyment, pleasure, bliss, rapture. But then by the continuity of sustained awareness, continuing to watch it, something began to shift. Began to shift when I noticed that all these pleasant, all the pleasant experiences, the sensations, the mind states, everything was passing away. I was observing more the passing than the arisings. And the shift was one where I, where the insight was into their Dukkha nature. It wasn't that I started to feel any kind of pain or misery at all. It was that I just saw that this kind of pleasure, this kind of uh, happiness was not permanent. And because it was not permanent, you know, because it's not lasting, it wasn't what I was looking for. It was not dependable. And that's why it's dukkha. My mind wasn't duked out. It was it was just more sober, more even, more equanimous, and accepting, yes, that this is what it is. And so it just became a flow of sensations. And what disappeared was the attachment to it, the enchantment to the pleasure. The more subtle states that we experience the more subtle the craving or attachment can arise and the more energy we need to tune in to the subtle grasping subtle attachment the seeing clearly it falls away and and these insights really bring a a, a release a liberation a deeper joy it's okay that it passes away It's okay that we're not always in these blissful states. In fact, we feel more connected and more grounded than ever. You do not have to leave your room. Remain sitting at your table and listen. Do not even listen. Simply wait. Do not even wait. Be still and solitary. The world will freely offer itself to you. It has no choice. It will roll in ecstasy at your feet. Kafka. Amazing. Happiness of seclusion. Entering solitude. Beginning to be protected from... Uh, from the hindrances and distraction, form, concepts begin to fall away. Our first little glimpses into direct nature of experience, anicca nature, change, dukkha nature, instability, anatta nature, emptiness. And then the happiness of concentration. The mind drops into deeper levels. Where we feel particularly this joy and rapture. It's marked by the, the the various kinds of thrill, bliss, rapture, and then an even settling kind of joy that integrates into our mindfulness, becomes part of it. Happiness of contentment, this joy itself, this integrates with awareness, is not so prominent. And what comes forward is quality of spiritual happiness that defines this happiness of contentment. Rapture recedes, replaced by comfort, by ease. The whole body and mind feel very even. can sit for long periods of time, even with pain, and feel undisturbed by that. We can go into the pain, or we can shift when we need, when we need to shift, but we just don't feel uh, the whole mind-body quality of mind feels undisturbed in this place of contentment. This is a more mature insight of the previous one, rising and passing away where the attachment, the enchantment, has fallen away. And instead of the thrill of rapture, is this evenness of contentment, of spiritual happiness. We feel, feel really at rest. And once more, we see into the same law of Dhamma, whether it be deeper into impermanence, deeper into uh, dukkha, deeper into the emptiness of self do these disturb do these insights become more disturbing no it may lift more uh, deeper you know karmic knots tangles deeper layers of conditioning but the insights themselves are always releasing that is we may go into a, a layer of tension, deep layer of tightness in the mind, or we may feel it in the body. And there might be a lot of pain at first, but the actual insight, where it opens up and we see its nature of changing, of emptiness, is itself a, a release, a tremendous release of energy, enthusiasm. Joy, an insight is joyous. And in this case, a very contenting kind of joy. Not excitement of not that excitement of mind which can be a subtle agitation. Truth liberates, therefore frees energy, frees that joy of being you know and so we cycle this this isn't linear this is never linear happiness of solitude in and out of that happiness of concentration we know that we have on days and off days happiness of contentment where we feel completely at ease this you know this is really feels connected this is what i'm here for this is the purpose but we can kind of move out of that as well in cycles you know dark nights of the soul practice is a cycle it's like a spiraling cycle it's just not linear it's always changing but at the same time each cycle is a deeper insight loosen more of our of our grasping more clinging more clarity comes about even if later on that disappears and that spark of presence that sparkling presence is dulled don't worry it'll come back don't tighten up around it don't try to get back to anything it'll all change again this happiness happiness of contentment is known as the sweet in the text as the sweetest happiness you know because it's It's the last insight where we experience pleasantness in this kind of degree. You know, earlier on was the the initial pleasantness of of solitude and then in concentration. We felt that quality we call piti, bliss, joy, rapture. And in the happiness of contentment, uh, sukha is the word opposite of dukkha. Deep spiritual happiness, ease, contentment of body and mind. The sweetest of happiness. There's a lot of equanimity here. A lot of peace. The two insights here, the the tender or early arising and passing and this more mature uh, arising and passing. That is the happiness of concentration, happiness of of contentment. There are significant turning points in practice. It's said that when we really are grounded in these insights, there's no turning back. It's said that it's as if our arm lifts up. At some point, it's going to come down. And that coming down means at some point, It's going to touch the unconditioned. The unborn. At this point, we go through these insights and they're really matured. It's like we can't turn back from the path. Even if we, you know, miss 10 years of practice, we'll be drawn back by something deep in our being. You know, a soul felt Uh, connection and urge on our path that we're guided that the Dhamma somehow now has a hold of our hearts and will carry us through this is a poem by Mary Oliver uh, which one of my favorites signals to me these kind of tectonic plate shifts you know it's called The Journey one day you finally knew what you had to do, and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations through their melancholy, Though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late, enough, and a wild night in the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn. Though the sheets of clouds were there, there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. It's like those little opportunities or windows that open up a few times in our life. We walk through it. Certain patterns either never return or they can never hold us back with the grip, the same grip they had before. We're on our way. The happiness of seclusion, happiness of concentration, the mind gets real still, feel all that joy, integrates into our awareness and leads to uh, the insight of arising and passing, and then a more in, uh, mature insight into arising and passing, with the happiness of contentment, the great ease, deep felt spiritual happiness. The fourth happiness. It comes after a number of other ones that that follow. Sometimes they follow very very quickly. And I hardly even notice. And just to briefly mention, one of them is called dissolution. Dissolution is when nothing seems to be available, even to mindfulness. Often one feels that they're losing their mindfulness. Everything seems like quicksand or a waterfall. It's that place, you know, using my little... Dharma lights here, where it's not only pulsating like that, it's like this. It's like just pulsations of energy. Body, mind, falling away, falling away, falling away. Everything, sometimes visually, every sense, every sense door, every mind moment, just falling away like that, moment to moment nothing to hold on to. And so that might be followed by feeling a, a kind of, of a really unsettlement, misery, and, and, and terror. These are inside stages. The terror, the fear. It's a healthy fear. Now one doesn't always experience it because sometimes if, if the guidance is there and it's good, saying just watch those moments. You know, and why we'd feel them is really understandable. Everything... Was a, that we previously regarded as a composite of ourself is disappearing, gone. Of course we'd start to feel uneasy, miserable, terrified. But then comes a deeper sense of disenchantment with everything that was so enchanting and beguiling before. And from that, a longing, a longing to be liberated, a really healthy, longing. And that leads to this fourth happiness, this fourth jhana insight, the happiness of wisdom and equanimity. Natural radiance of mind and heart emerges. The glow of equanimity, brilliant mental balance in the face of all formations all changing conditions. Feel really even. It doesn't matter what's happening. Mind is like bamboo. Bamboo mind, you know, its great strength is in, is in its vulnerability, its yielding, its hollowness. It may bend toward what's attractive, but its nature is to come back to center. It may be blown back by what's intimidating unattractive unpleasant but its nature is to come back to center stand tall withstand the greatest of storms hurricanes this equanimity is in the happiness of this equanimity and wisdom even sukha even happiness recedes back into consciousness it doesn't disappear but it just takes kind of a back seat to this powerful balance of mind where one experiences neither pleasure nor pain. Just this pristine clarity of things as they are. Desire to have or desire to get rid of does not arise. In fact, mindfulness is so subtle and attuned that it, it sees things before the mind's disturbed by like and dislike, before there's a chance for that mind to categorize and judge as like or dislike, mindfulness just notices, let's go. Nothing is disturbing. Deep purity of seeing the as-it-is nature, the suchness of things. And profound satisfaction. Like Don't need anything to be different. Even that longing for liberation has fallen away. So even the subtlest craving in that moment is not known. Nothing is seen as worth clinging to. Nothing worth clinging to. Here's where one's heart or mind can have the greatest intimacy with oneself, with others, with life. All formations are seen with this equality, with this great serene balance, this wideness of heart, this immensity of mind. We're not judging and we're We're intimate with anything or anyone just as they are. (coughs) Path of calm and insight. These four kinds of um Vipassana happinesses, solitude, our seclusion, concentration, contentment, and the happiness of wisdom and equanimity. They do two things simultaneously. They they beautify the mind and heart. They kind of reorder, retool our personalities. What we call ourselves, the more we understand ourselves as process, as motion, as fluid, the more we center around many of the qualities we've been speaking of or teaching you loving kindness, compassion, joy, gratitude, reverence, equanimity. That becomes the center, our sense of core of our being. Nothing else. So we beautify our sense of being. This is real. This is our experience. And we start living out of that experience in the world. The elements of our being. The body that glows more. The mental states that shine. Consciousness itself, which is an ever-flowing stream. To know that as it is. So practice transforms and beautifies our nature. And secondly, it moves us potentially beyond personality, beyond life and death, the transcend, transcendent nature of our spiritual practice of calm and insight. Leads us up to the potential to touch a. Fifth happiness, the ultimate happiness, from the ultimate renunciation, which is the ultimate generosity, the happiness of peace, of the unconditioned, the deathless, the unborn. What is beyond life and death? What is beyond our personality? Like the close. Just a, a brief, beautiful story of two monks who who lived close together. They each had their own monastery. This is in the Sagain Hills, this area that I've been talking about. Maybe 20 minutes inside these rolling hills. Ancient monastery, also a thousand years old, both of them. East uh, Parakrama and West Parakrama. A couple of centuries ago, there were two monks, and they both vowed to practice in their respective caves. And when it wasn't hot, they'd come out of their caves and in their little huts in front of their caves, they'd practice there. They vowed to practice until each one, until they were one of them, was fully liberated completely free of greed, hatred, delusion. And it was maybe a a mile or so from the one west Parakama cave against one valley in the east Parakama. And what they agreed to do is when one of them reached full enlightenment, they would light the lantern and hold the lantern up so that the other one across the valley could see that and take joy, take pleasure that their beloved friend had attained this highest of all happiness and peace. So they practiced for many years. And then one day, the monk who was at the West Parakama was out in front of his cave just doing walking meditation in the the dead of night moon was down, and he looked for a moment, mindfully, across to the east, you know, to see if there was anything there. And he looked over where his brother monk was. (laughs) And he saw the lantern. (laughs) And he knew that his brother monk was enlightened. And he felt such empathetic joy in his mind and then he noticed the empathetic joy in his mind and saw its nature of impermanence and emptiness of self. And then he himself became fully enlightened and he lit <laughs> his lantern. <laughs> so the two lights came across and met in the meadow. We practice for ourselves. We practice for all beings. Let's sit a moment. The Buddha said, The true disciple dwells contemplating mind all the time without a miss, fully knowing, comprehending with insight that it is transient, impermanent, and unenduring and cannot remain for two successive moments the same. Thus the disciple, imbued with the knowledge of impermanence and free from defilement, can attain and realize Nibbāna in this very life.